Well, hello and welcome to Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad to be with you on this first weekend of 2021. Now, I hope you had a Merry Christmas and that your new year, at least so far, is off to a good start. Uh, now, if you're anything like me, 2020 was pretty much full of things that I'd really love to forget. But then there were also some things that I really need to remember and, and lessons that I really needed to learn. Because in one way or another, it seemed like, at least from start to finish, 2020 brought us, all of us, in one way or another, to the edge of our comfort zones, right? We were both individually and collectively pushed to the limits of everything that we thought and knew as normal. And, and uh, it changed everything, even about how we deal with problems and think about challenges. And much of it, let's be honest, left us scratching our heads. And at worst, we were face to face with destruction and unparalleled division and even death itself. Now, much of what each of us has gone through has not ended yet. And it, and it certainly hasn't ended just because the calendar has rolled over. So I want to recognize that struggles still exist and that answers are still elusive and that cooperation is still a surprising challenge. But, but my own personal mantra, I'm going to let you in on a secret, my personal mantra is simply, hey, it's 2021 and the drama is done. It's 2021, the drama's done. It's got a nice ring to it. Now, regardless of how naive that is, <laughs> just let me live in that delusion, at least for just a few days anyway. But we all, I think, know that no matter what, we will still have times where we find ourselves stretched and pushed outside of our comfort zones. And it doesn't even have to be something complicated because being outside of our comfort zones takes so many different Form. So for maybe just a moment, think of something in your life, a situation that you've been in that's made you feel uncomfortable. Because maybe it's something simple like, you know, you, you traveled or you visited somewhere and, and you didn't really know the, the customs or the language and it just made you feel really out of place, like everybody knows something but you don't know. Or, or maybe it was the first time you met uh, a significant other's parents and, and it really didn't go well. Maybe they asked you some questions and they didn't like the answers you gave. Well, I tell you, for me, I had an experience a few years ago I want to share with you that took me way outside of my comfort zone. I had never had a massage before, nor would I probably ever have even considered ever having a massage if it weren't for the fact that we had some friends who booked several couples a day at the spa, and they paid for it all, and so I kind of, you know, had to go along, and, and everybody was excited. Well, I mean, everybody but me was excited, because, you know, talk about uncomfortable. At, at least it was for me, anyway. Now, with these other guys, there were two other guys who were my friends, and they were both familiar with this kind of thing. They'd been to this kind of thing before. This was no big deal. They were absolutely no help to me whatsoever. You know, at one point, I heard the directions. It was like, go in there, change out of your clothes, put on a robe and slippers, and then come out into this great big room where you're just going to sit around and everyone's going to stare at you. It's my worst nightmare. Then when we were in there changing our clothes and getting our robes on, I was looking through all these slippers and I was going through this bin and I finally, I was so frustrated, I just announced, look, I can't find two slippers that are the same size. And they just giggled because it turns out the bin 
that I was digging in was the one that you put your dirty slippers in after you're done. Nice. Thanks, guys. Now, I'll spare you the rest of the details, but let's just say <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine being more uncomfortable than I was that entire day at the spa. So I think it goes without saying that we're all uncomfortable at some point or another. But what about when it comes to matters of faith? What happens when someone puts you on the spot and asks you directly, you know, what do you believe and, and why do you believe it? Because this is where I often find that people start to really squirm the most. Now, generally speaking, people are just simply uncomfortable sharing what they believe with other people. And, well, of course, unless that means that you're doing it on social media. Then the trick is how do you get people to stop sharing what they believe? But when you're face-to-face -face or mask-to-mask, -mask, in this particular case, with another person, and the topic of faith comes up, people seem to clam up pretty quick. They, they get really uncomfortable really quickly. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this is no big deal. I mean, the idea of sharing your faith, there is no faith, so who cares? You don't have a problem telling people that you don't believe and, and you don't want to believe. I meet people like this regularly, and, and they don't seem to be uncomfortable. They certainly don't seem to be uncomfortable with telling me how crazy they think I am. But if you call yourself a Christian, and, and if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then you already know that part of our journey is that we're always supposed to be ready to give an answer for the reason that we have hope, especially in a world that feels and seems so hopeless. And yes, this can be often very uncomfortable. But the reality is that following Jesus is not comfortable, nor is it convenient. Following Jesus is not comfortable or convenient. However, knowing the reason for our hope and then, and then sharing that good news with others is precisely how God has chosen to build his church and to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And certainly God could have chosen any other way he wanted to go about this, but for whatever reason, he has chosen to do this building, this kingdom building through people. People just like you and me. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. But before we get into the specifics, let's pray together first. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together in these moments. Thank you that you have a plan for us. Thank you for the, the year that just ended, and thank you for the future that has just begun in 2021. Lord, we're humbled and amazed at how good you are. And we just ask right now in this this time we have together, that you speak truth to our hearts and re reveal who you are and who we are in you in new ways that we might leave changed from when we came in. And Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness, and we ask that as you send us out to spread your good news, that we do it with confidence and with boldness, knowing that, Lord, you are the one who is building your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I mentioned before, this is the first weekend of the brand new year. 
And every time the calendar rolls over, it seems like it's a good time for us to recenter and refocus. I know we do that on an individual basis a lot. We make goals, we make plans. They usually don't maybe make it to the end of January. But all that to say, we also have plans that we can talk about as a church. How does this play out for us as a church? And so we're going to take the next four weeks and explore some of the core things that ground us and guide us in what we do and how we do it so that we can collectively continue uh, growing into who God is calling us to be as Grace Church. Now, when we had our vision night back in September, I don't know if you had a a chance to be there, but if you were there, you'll know that one of the points I made was that it's actually Jesus himself who promises that he will build his church. He is the one doing the building, but he's also invited us to be part of doing that work. And so today we're going to look more specifically at how we should understand the foundation of who we are as a church in light of this truth and how each of us is uniquely invited into God's mission to reach lost people and bring them into relationship with God as God himself through Jesus continues to build his church. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first gospel in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew 16, and we're going to look specifically at verses 13 to 20. Now, once you get there, you're going to notice that this is a very famous passage, and it's, it's famous and well-known primarily because of how uh, hotly it's been debated, not just for a little while, but for, for thousands of years. But I hope that we can see through all that today, and we can get to the core, and we can explore and understand a bit more about how the truths that are revealed here are very deep truths, and they guide and they shape our understanding of exactly what it means to be God's church. So I'm going to start by reading Matthew, uh, again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So we're just going to start with a little bit of background here. We're we're kind of joining up with Jesus and his disciples as they're continuing on this journey they've been on. It's gone on for several previous chapters in Matthew. And all throughout, Jesus has been doing amazing things. He's been healing people, casting out demons. He's he's even miraculously fed large groups of people, 5,000 people, 4,000 people. But now he's continuing their journey by leading these disciples further and further away from Jerusalem. That's important. We're going to talk about why that is. But they've left the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they've continued north for at least another 30 miles. And so they're getting further and further away from home, further away from everything that's familiar. 
And Jesus is leading them, uh, I would say, significantly outside of their comfort zone. And they were literally standing at the edge of the only world that any of them had ever known or experienced. Because they don't really go uh, this far out. And now here they are, Jesus has led them, and it's not just the geographic location that makes this place called Caesarea Philippi different. It's different enough as it is because it's totally different than what they're used to, but it also is different culturally because it has all different kinds of customs, traditions. The people themselves were different than, what, than who they were used to seeing. And Caesarea Philippi was, was basically a new name for a city that had previously been called Panias, which was named after the pagan god Pan. Uh, and and you know, when, if you ever know about Greek mythology, things like this, the, the pantheon. This was kind of the main central uh, pagan god named Pan, and this was the center of all pagan worship. It even had a temple that was dedicated to Pan right there. And so the surrounding landscape all around them is, is littered with shrines and idols that have been built to honor these pagan gods and goddesses. And, and several of them have even been carved and shaped and molded into the sides of this huge mountain. It's basically like a pagan Mount Rushmore, if you will. And so the disciples were way outside of their comfort zone. Indeed, they'd never seen anything or experienced anything like this. And they were led there by this Jesus who they still amongst themselves have lots of questions about this. They're not quite clear on who this Jesus is. So that's, that's important. It's not just their surroundings that are making them a little bit uncomfortable, but it's, it's also the fact that they've not really been able to pin down just exactly who this Jesus really is. I mean, can he really be trusted? And so their disorientation is, is certainly understandable. And again, the, the previous chapters in Matthew are, are kind of like a roller coaster ride uh, because people, groups of people and Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and the crowds of people, they all have uh, a different opinion about Jesus' true identity and what he's really up to. And, and so on the one hand, the crowds seem to love him. Uh, but at the very same time, the religious leaders become increasingly more and more suspicious of him uh, and eventually start turning even hostile toward him. And so these disciples there are stuck kind of in the middle a little bit. They're trying to figure out, well, okay, who is this guy? And while there have been moments for them along the way that have provided at least some amount of clarity, they, they still do have lots of uncertainty. I wonder if sometimes we have uncertainty too. We wonder, who is this Jesus? Can you relate to that at all? I know I can. Who is this Jesus? Isn't it interesting that this is the environment, this environment of uncertainty is the one that Jesus leads them to. He puts them in an environment where he knows that they're going to be uncomfortable. And then right in the middle of all of that kind of nervousness, anxiety, maybe uncertainty, struggles, they're wondering what's going on. They're wondering who he is. It's, it's right there. They're, they're standing right at the foothills of these massive pagan shrines. And they're, they're standing in the shadows of these rock, gar, uh, rock gods that are carved into the side of the mountain. And this is where Jesus decides to pop the question. 
the identity question. He wants to know, who do you say that I am? But, you know, he lobs a, a little softball to him at first and makes it easier by saying, well, who do other people say that I am? And I think we can all agree, we can all agree on how much easier it is to talk about other people, right? And the answers that they give are all understandable because some of the people say Elijah and maybe some, some other people say the prophets and maybe some other people might say John the Baptist, meaning like, well, this Jesus is someone who prepares the way for this eventual promised Messiah. Uh, lots of other people, they, they got a lot of different answers. It's very similar again to our world today. You ask a lot of different people who Jesus is, you're going to get a lot of different answers. But then things start to move to get a little bit more specific. He says, wait a minute, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is not just directed at one particular disciple. This is a question for all of them. The you here is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? Well, I think there's probably a lot of silence at that moment, as maybe some of them were having the shifty eyes while they're looking around, and we don't know. And, but we do know in that particular environment, where are they going to run off to? There's nowhere for them to go to escape. There's nothing familiar. There's nothing comfortable. There, there, there's, there's no phone a friend or, or a lifeline or, or even life lock for that matter. There's nothing but this uncomfortably pregnant pause as Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And then stands there and waits for an answer. But it's not just a question for the disciples either. It's the same question he has for you and for me today. Who do you say that I am? Because the truth is that what we think of Jesus and, and who we believe he is changes everything about who we are. Changes everything about who we are. In other words, our understanding of Jesus' identity shapes our own. Our understanding of Jesus' identity shapes our own. So when someone comes up and asks us, well, who is Jesus? What, were, what will our answer be? What will your answer be? Well, some will say, well, he's just a fictional character, just made up. Some people will say he was, he was a great thinker or a philosopher. Or some, some will say, well, he's a great moral figure. He taught us how to live. And some people will say he was just a good teacher. Some will say he was, he was a rebel and he was admirable because uh, he uh, fought for the underdog. And some will say that he was a conservative. And some will say that he's a liberal. And some may even have a bumper sticker they've stuck on their car just to try to show it. But then there are others who will answer just like Simon Peter. He's the Messiah, meaning he's the, he's the anointed one, the Savior of the world. He's the Son of the living God. And it's always a miracle when this happens because against all odds and often in our most uncomfortable of situations, the Lord shows up and gives us ears to hear and eyes to see exactly the same thing that Simon Peter confesses. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. So somehow, Simon gets it right. He gets it right. 
And it happens in this most unlikely place that's, that's far away from home, far away from Jerusalem, far away from what's familiar, far away from even what's safe. And yet here, here is where the Messiah is revealed. Not just to the disciples, but how many times have you been in a situation in your life where struggles and challenges are overwhelming you, and that's when God reveals himself to you in Jesus. It's in these times that we find Jesus revealed to us. So this is not by a mistake, or it's not like Jesus took a wrong turn, or he got lost or something. He led these disciples out to this place on purpose not away from uncertainty and confusion, but directly deeper into it. Why? Well, perhaps for one thing, it's so they can stand firm in a lost and broken and chaotic world and proclaim, hey, there is no hope in these dead rock gods, but there is hope in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And maybe this could be one reason why Jesus gives Simon the nickname Peter. We know him as Peter. This is where it came from. It literally means rock or stone. Maybe Jesus gave him this name so that Peter's very name itself will serve as an ongoing reminder of of this great confession of who Jesus is and, and where it took place. Because the language is kind of a Greek play on words. It, it kind of, in, in Greek, if you were to translate it word for word, it's not so much that he calls him Peter. He basically says, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. But of course, sometimes this makes us more confused, not less confused, right? Because then we start thinking, well, maybe it's all about Peter, and then, you know, we're not going to get into all that. But, but thousands of years of history talk about uh, what happens when we think, well, this is all about Peter. Or maybe we shift and we think, well, it must, is it all about us and, and all about what we do? Well, maybe that's what it is. Because the question we're really trying to a- answer right there is, who is actually doing the building? If Jesus says, I will build my church, Does that mean Jesus? Does that mean us? How does that work? And if the only evidence we had to go on was just the general trend and the dwindling state of many churches throughout the United States, we might be tempted to say, well, nobody seems to be building it. Honestly, it's falling apart. It's not being built up. Uh, the, The last nine, 10 months have really accelerated this uh, destruction of churches. So it's not being built up. It's, it's totally falling apart. But, but here's the thing. When we try to build churches ourselves, it will always fail. It will always fail. It, it may not fail right away, but it will eventually fail. Because building churches is not something that we can do at least not the real church. It's not something that can happen through our own efforts or our own willpower. And when we try to build the church and we do that based on our programs or maybe a particular pastor or even a particular physical place, it is already on the course for destruction. It is already destined for failure. 
Now, at the same time, I'm not saying that we don't have the opportunity and the invitation, if not obligation, to participate in God's kingdom building activities, because we certainly do. But none of it can happen, and none of it is truly possible, and it certainly is not sustainable without Jesus the Messiah alone at the center of all of it. Jesus is the builder of the church and the cornerstone of our faith. He's the builder of our church, not just our church. He's the builder of the church and the cornerstone of our faith. And now don't be confused by the word church here. That's another point of confusion. The church that Jesus is talking about is not a physical place. It's not a building or a structure or anything like that. It's a people, not a place. The word really means more like gathering uh, or assembly of people, not like what we typically think of when we think of going to church. We think of going oftentimes to a place, and if the last nine, ten months have taught us anything, we've gotten used to the idea of, well, maybe that's not always possible. Maybe sometimes we have to gather together in a different way. But specifically speaking, it's God's people who are the church, regardless of how we gather together, when we gather together, and we're centered around the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, then that's the true church. That's the true church. Jesus came to do only what he can do. And when we center ourselves and understand uh, everything that we can about who God is in Christ, that God himself took on flesh and in the person of Jesus came to live and dwell amongst us, amongst his people, all the while knowing that people would reject him and the world would, would ultimately betray him and crucify him not for his sake, but for our sake, and that he would take the sins of the whole world upon himself and, and put them for, to death once and for all, but that he wouldn't stay dead and he would be raised not only to new life, but to the very same new life that he offers to you and to me today. All of that then should roll into how we answer this question, who do you say? That he is. Because if you know him and you trust him and you follow him, then that's going to be a question that needs to be answered over and over and over again. Not because you know the right words to say or you know what the correct answer is or what it's supposed to be or, or how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to say it. No, it's like what happened here with Peter. It's because the Holy Spirit of God reveals the truth to each one of us about who Jesus is and who we are in him. And Jesus then comes into our life by the power of the Spirit of God and makes faith where there was none before. Because, folks, we cannot talk ourselves into believing the truth about who Jesus is. We, we cannot sit down and, and reason our way into a relationship with him. But when we ask him, to reveal the truth about himself to us, then whenever and wherever and however, whether it's online, in person, or otherwise, wherever and whenever we gather together and we seek him and we proclaim the truth about him and we worship him, that's when he shows up and everything changes. And it's not based on our willpower, but it's 
based on his blood and through his testimony. The gathering of God's people around this confession, around the truth about who God is in Jesus, is the only church that can ever withstand and even overcome the gates of Hades itself. That's the church that we're called to be. And that's the church we will continue becoming. Will you join us? Will you join us? Because if so, God invites and empowers you and me to be part of his kingdom building activities in this lost and broken world. And he's not only called his followers into it. He's also given us the same keys to the kingdom that he gave to his disciples. He gave them to Peter. He talks about, uh, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Look at verse 19 again. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, it's easy when we hear these words, it's easy for us to get kind of wrapped up and confused in well, what's really going on here. We hear words like binding and loosing and, and we either check out or we get really confused because it doesn't really seem to make any sense to us. That's not the way we really talk about things. But I want us to think about it this way. It's Jesus, uh, the word of God, who unlocks the power of true Forgiveness. Jesus is who unlocks the power of true forgiveness. And so it's, it's the word of God that unlocks this forgiveness. You and I do not have the power to offer. We don't have that power to forgive sins. God alone does. But again, he invites us into his kingdom building activities by sending us out to be his messengers of this very good news. In Jesus, God has come. God has died and God has been raised again to new life so that he forgives our sins. Not just in general, but he forgives you and he forgives me. And it's in light of that forgiveness that God, who is the only one that can give this, gives us the kind of peace that passes all of our reason, knowledge, understanding. The peace that passes all of our understanding. When we know and we trust that Jesus is the Messiah or our Savior, then the peace that we have with God begins to permeate the relationships that we have with one another. And so instead of being opposed to God or betraying God, we instead become his instruments of grace and mercy in this world that, that he loves so much that he sent his only son. And then if we live our lives in ways that finally reflect that truth, then we will be useful, maybe finally useful to our neighbors. And not just to the people in the situations where we're already comfortable and we already like and we're already familiar with and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus continues to lead, just like he did with his disciples, he continues to lead us out to precisely where we're not comfortable, where it's not convenient. And where we have no choice in those circumstances, but, but just to trust him alone, that he is good and he will see us through. In the face of the challenges that we will continue to encounter in this broken world, 
Will we cling to the hope that we have in Jesus? Or will we wonder whether or not, has God abandoned us? Has God forsaken us? Well, I think all of it depends on what we believe about Jesus and who we say that he is. And so what if we, just like the disciples, are right now standing at the edge of our comfort zones? Because I know we are in many ways. And what if, what if it's Jesus himself who is continuing to lead us and push us out into unfamiliar territory in this world that, that continues to make less and less sense to us? Maybe that's Jesus himself actually putting us in these circumstances so that at precisely times like this, when we don't have all the answers that he's going to once again show up to us and ask, who do you say that I am? Collectively and individually, who do you say I am as, the, as a church, as Grace Church? Who do you say that I am individually? Am, am I just a teacher? Am, am I just a good example? Am I just some kind of slogan for your marketing brochure? Am I just a leftover mascot from a failed experiment we call church? Am, am I just kind of uh, maybe some kind of social theory or, or a lofty idea? Or am I just a figment of somebody's imagination, a, a total fabrication? Or am I the great I am, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God, the one who has promised to be with you always till the end of the age. And so I wonder, I, Bob, now wonder, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because my prayer is that each of us comes to know and to trust and to believe that Jesus is the only one and the only hope that we have. He is the one who is the cornerstone of our faith and he alone is the one who is the builder of the church. Yes, we get invited into that. Yes, we have a role to play because he's chosen to do it that way. But will we be his messengers of his hope? Will we be messengers of his peace? And will, will we be messengers of his forgiveness? Will we deliver this good news into a world that is so desperately lost and broken? Or will we just say, yeah, we'll leave that for somebody else. Because I think as Jesus leads us and guides us, the truth is we will be uncomfortable. If we follow him, we will be uncomfortable. If we follow him, we will make mistakes. If we follow him, we will have to admit to one another that we do not have all the answers. But even in light of all that, what we do have is a promise. We have a promise that it is Jesus himself who is building his church, not us. And he's doing it his way, not ours. And when we gather in his name and we know who he is and we trust who he truly is, then that's the kind of church that not even the gates of Hades can overcome. That is the true church. That's a church I want to be part of. How about you? Amen.